There were no witnesses when Samuel anointed Saul over Israel. They were alone. Prior to the anointing, you might have noticed in the text that Samuel had dismissed Saul's servant and sent him ahead of them. So Samuel and Saul were alone, and there in that solitary moment, Samuel revealed to Saul that he was to be the first king over the people of Israel. As I reflected on the story again this week, I found myself wondering how Saul would have responded to that revelation. Do you think he believed Samuel? Some of the later details of his story make me think that he might have, but then other of the details make me think that he didn't really believe it. You know, hiding among the baggage and other things that will happen. What's most interesting to me, however, is that it appears as though God did not expect Saul to take Samuel's word for it. After anointing Saul, Samuel provided Saul with three signs that would demonstrate that Samuel's words did, in fact, come from God. So these are the three quickly. Saul would encounter two men near the tomb of Rachel, which was near Bethlehem in the tribe of Judah, who would inform Saul that his father's donkeys had been found and that Saul's father was looking for him. Secondly, Saul would then encounter three men going up to Bethel near the Oak of Tabor, which was, it tells you a little about Israel that they named the oak trees, right? It tells you something about Israel. It mustn't have been very many, many of them, but that's possibly where Isaac's wife, Rebecca's nurse, Deborah, was buried. Is that a lot of names? But that's probably where it was. That's why they knew it. These men would be carrying three young goats, three loaves of bread, and a jug of wine. They would offer Saul two of those loaves of bread, and he was to accept them. It's very specific. Third, finally, when Saul arrived home, we remember that Saul lived in Gibeah, and that's where the Philistine garrison was, he would encounter a group of prophets prophesying, and Saul would be enabled to prophesy with them. So all those occurrences were meant to be signs to validate Samuel's anointing of Saul. And as verse 7 indicates, they were intended to ensure that Saul knew that God was with him. What did these signs reveal to us about God? First, it would appear that God understands how difficult it is to discern true prophets from false prophets. The text of 1 Samuel, it's already told us that Samuel was a prophet truly sent from God. We read before in 1 Samuel chapter 3, verses 19 to 21, these words. Now Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and he let, he let none of his words fail. And all Israel, from Dan even to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was confirmed as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, because the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. So certainly, God would have expected Saul to trust Samuel's word, right? But curiously, no. God did not expect Saul to exercise that kind of faith. In order to validate Samuel's claims, God required Samuel to provide Saul with three signs which were so specific and so unlikely that Saul would not have been to explain them in a natural, naturalistic way. Why did God do that? Because God is a God of chesed, of steadfast faithfulness to his word. And this is precisely what God said he would do in the covenant of Sinai. Deuteronomy 18, verses 18 to 22, recounts the following. I will raise up for them a prophet from among their countrymen like you, he's speaking to Moses, and I'll put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them everything that I command him. And it shall come about that whoever does not listen to my words, which he speaks in my name, I myself will require it of him. 
But the prophet who speaks a word presumptuously in my name, a word which I have not commanded him to speak, or which he speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how will we recognize the word which the Lord has not spoken? When the prophet speaks in the name of the Lord and the thing does not happen or come true, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You are not to be afraid of him. So God gave Israel two ways of identifying true from false prophets. The first we didn't read is in Deuteronomy chapter 13, which says that if a prophet arises who leads the people to disobey the covenant of Sinai or to follow gods other than the one God of Israel, that person is a false prophet, even if they can do miraculous signs. The second, though, can be found in the verses we just read. If a prophet arises and declares something that's going to happen and that thing does not happen, then the prophet is to be considered a false prophet. God's true prophets never encourage disobedience, they never encourage the worship of other gods, and they never predict things that do not occur. The only way to survive then as a false prophet in Israel was to conceal any encouragement to disobey in such a way that it didn't look like disobedience or to conceal any incorporation of the worship of false gods in such a way that the worship would not look to be idolatrous or to refuse to make predictions that are clear and instead to make very vague predictions that could be interpreted any which way. Samuel was not a false prophet. How do we know? Well, First, he led the people in obedience to the covenant of Sinai. Second, he did not tolerate the worship of false gods. And third, not only was he not afraid to make precise predictions, but the predictions he made always came to pass. It was by these things that the people of Israel knew Samuel to be a true prophet of God. And it was by these same things that Saul came to know personally that Samuel was a true prophet of God. And even more, God's willingness to provide these signs to Saul again demonstrates God's faithfulness to his word, God's chesed. So first, these signs demonstrate God's awareness of the deceptiveness of false prophets, along with God's chesed in demonstrating the truthfulness of Samuel's words in ways consistent with the covenant of Sinai. Second, these signs demonstrate the precision with which God perceives the future. This is very exact, isn't it? It does not appear that God guesses with respect to the future. God apparently knows future events with great precision. And maybe many Christians today just take that foreknowledge of God for granted. But it's important to recognize that the foundation of those beliefs are found in passages like this. We should at least observe it. Even more, when God sends prophets, such people do not guess at the future either. They don't try to make predictions based on likelihoods or algorithms or environmental conditions or societal trends. When a true prophet is sent by God, God himself speaks to them. A true prophet like Samuel is not a diviner, they're not a soothsayer, they're not an oracle, they're not a forecaster. A true prophet like Samuel is simply a messenger. So these signs demonstrate God's awareness of the difficulty we humans have in telling true prophets from false prophets. And they demonstrate God's undying loyalty to always do what he promised he would do. And they reveal to us the precision with which God sees the road ahead of us. But more than this, these signs also reveal to us the graciousness with which God interacts with his people. 
In our last discussion, we explored the personality of Saul. Saul was a humble and a meek person. He had come from a humiliated tribe in Israel, and he considered himself to be a person of little national worth. In chapter 9, Saul was quite surprised at the warm welcome that he received from Samuel, and he was even more surprised that Samuel insisted that he sit at the head of the table at a meal that was called in his honor. The text seems to indicate that it would have been hard for Saul to believe that God wanted him to be king. So God condescended to Saul's meekness. God provided Saul with three extremely detailed signs by which Saul might come to believe that God had truly chosen him. God went out of his way to assure Saul that Samuel's words were really from God and that God truly had determined to walk with him in his task of leadership in Israel. God knew the kind of person Saul was, and God spoke to him in a way that was consistent with who he was. That strikes me as immensely kind. And of course, these signs were not signs for Saul alone. As hard as it might have been for Saul to believe that a member of the tribe of Benjamin like him would be chosen as king, it was probably equally as hard for Samuel and for the rest of the tribes of Israel to believe it, maybe even harder. It's unclear as to whether any of the other tribes would have heard of these signs or if they would have even believed them if they had been told. God would eventually persuade the rest of Israel by casting lots, which we'll get to in weeks to come. But we should not overlook the fact that these signs were not only signs for Saul, but they were signs for Samuel as well. Now, we don't know if Samuel ever doubted that it was indeed God who was speaking to him. Perhaps he always assumed that the words he heard were from God. But oftentimes we take for granted the certainty of the prophets. But if there was any doubt in Samuel, either about God's voice or about Saul's selection, certainly these signs would have done a great deal to encourage Samuel that it was indeed God who was speaking to him. God's concern for the understanding and the faith of his people reveals a great deal about God's character. When God took on flesh in the person of Jesus, he demonstrated that same concern when he was careful to take his disciples aside and explain his teachings to them. Even so, this carefulness also begs a deeper question, and I wonder if you are asking it the way that I am. Why is it that God is so careful to explain himself to some people, while at the same time remaining so apparently confusing or even silent for others? God went out of his way to assure Samuel and Saul with multiple signs of his will and of his speaking. And yet there are many examples of the scriptures, and I dare say much more, many more examples in our own lives of people who seem to be forced to guess as to what God might want. Why is that? Interestingly enough, Jesus' disciples asked that very question. The exchange can be found in Matthew chapter 13, verses 10 to 17. Scriptures say this, And the disciples came up and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And Jesus answered them, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. For whoever has, to him more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because while seeing they do not see, and while hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, You shall keep on listening, but shall not understand. 
and you shall keep on looking, but shall not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull. With their ears they scarcely hear, and they've closed their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their heart, and return, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, Jesus says to his disciples, because they see, and your ears because they hear. For truly I say to you that many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. It's a hard teaching of Jesus, but it's an important aspect of what Jesus came to teach his followers. Rebellion, did you hear what he's saying? Rebellion and sin deafen us to the speaking of God. Rebellion and sin deafen us to the speaking of God. Because Jesus' disciples were willing to listen to him, he was willing to explain his teachings to them. But most of those who came to hear did not come willing to be instructed, so Jesus spoke to them in parables. I've heard many people tell me that parables make teachings clearer and that stories make things clearer. If you think about it for a minute, that's entirely wrong. Jesus did not speak to them in parables to make his teachings clearer. In fact, Jesus says the opposite. Jesus spoke in in parables to make his true intent harder to grasp. You probably noticed this about parables. One of the reasons people like stories, and one of the reasons people like poetry, and one of the reasons people like music, and one of the reasons people like television shows, is that they're open to multiple interpretations. You can make of them whatever you want. Parables are that way too. Jesus' audience could make the parables mean almost anything they wanted. In order to understand the parables, Jesus' listeners would have to come to him for additional explanation. And his disciples did this, and so they learned what Jesus meant to say. Most of Jesus' listeners, though, did not ask for clarification, and so they were left with only what they thought Jesus meant to say. And in that way, the parables actually made his teachings less clear. In the Gospel of John, one of Jesus' disciples asks him a similar question to the one asked in Matthew. And Jesus' response in that context reveals a bit more. The exchange is found in John 14, 18 to 24. It says this, I will not leave you as orphans. I'm coming to you. After a little while, this is Jesus talking to his disciples, the world no longer is going to see me, but you are going to see me. Because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. The one who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And the one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will reveal myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, John wants to take him off the table, said to him, Lord, what has happened that you're going to reveal yourself to us and not to the others, to the world? Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will follow my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our dwelling with him. The one who does not love me does not follow my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father, the Father's who sent me. When Judas asked Jesus why he was so clear in his teaching to them, but so opaque with others, Jesus' response was that he was willing to be clear only with those who keep his commandments. This makes a great deal of sense in the story of King Saul. Given that Samuel was willing to keep God's commandments, the fact that God was very willing to clarify things for him is quite consistent with what Jesus taught his disciples. Given that Saul, to this point, was willing to obey Samuel's words, go to the places that Samuel indicated, do the things that Samuel said, 
God's clarity with Saul, too, is consistent with what Jesus taught his disciples. However, as we'll see in upcoming discussions about Saul, once Saul disobeys God's commands, Saul, too, will find God's will and God's word more and more difficult to discern. To those who love God by obeying his commandments, God is willing to speak to them more and more plainly, taking into account who they are, and how they are best encouraged to understand. However, for those who are not willing to obey his commandments, God will increasingly blind their eyes and deafen their ears, so that hearing they do not hear and seeing they do not see. Loving God by obeying his commandments brings clarity. Hating God by rebelling against his commandments and refusing to obey him brings confusion and it brings darkness. Through the story of Saul's anointing, we've learned that God is appreciative of the difficulty we have of discerning between those God has sent and those who have falsely claimed to speak to us on God's behalf. And because God recognizes this difficulty, he has consistently taught us that we can tell the difference by the fruit a person produces. True prophets of God produce fruit in keeping with God's teachings. That is, they bear the fruit of the Spirit, They teach God's people to obey God's commandments. They warn God's people when they are wandering into the worship of false gods. And they speak warnings that do, in fact, come true in real space and time. And we've learned that true prophets can do this because God has spoken to them. And God can see both the present and the future with great clarity. But we've also learned that God is not seeking to be mysterious to his people. God is willing to go to great lengths to ensure that his disciples understand his will and his teachings. However, God is only willing to provide this clarity to those who are willing to love him by obeying his commandments. Those who are unwilling to obey his commandments, however hard they might seek to understand, they will find the true meaning and intention of God out of their grasp. May each of us find that by loving God with all our heart, soul, and strength, By obeying what he has taught us, we receive the mind of Christ, and along with it, a certain confidence of God's will and his way for us. Amen. Amen.